Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Dave Benner. Dave is one of the guys who runs the Libertarian Party official Twitter account. He's also a a, a published author. He has three books he has written and a, I think he calls himself an amateur historian. But I really enjoy chatting with Dave about all things political from, of course, you know, kind of an anarcho-libertarian lens so warning this is libertarian nerd talk um but but i love it and i really appreciate dave coming on if you're a fan of the kelly patrick show i ask that you please send some referrals the way of my sponsors the title sponsor of the show is louisville combat academy located at 7908 beulah church road louisville kentucky 40228 they have a great mma program but also even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage they have a great jujitsu program for adults female friendly classes and a great kids program also check out louisville combat academy heidi solars coots heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor specializing in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare-eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. I am joined by returning guest Dave Benner from Nashville, Tennessee. Dave, how are you? Good. Hey, thanks for having me, Kelly. Good to be back, and it's always fun to talk to you. Certainly. Um, Before we jump into the conversation for today, um, Dave, you're an author. You're uh, actually, what's your what's your uh, introduction for Dave Benner? What what is it that you do? Yeah, I mean, I'm an amateur historian. I've written three books on the founding period and the antebellum period. Uh, my latest is a biography on Thomas Paine. I also run the LP National Twitter account. I'm one of two guys essentially that does that. And there were times in which it was mostly only me. And I've also contributed to Mises Institute and 10th Amendment Center on various uh, constitutional history issues. So um, constitutional history and like liberty oriented history is definitely my forte. Um, and you said that you run a lot of the Twitter account for the official Libertarian Party uh, account. Uh, you seem to have had some very good traction with, with that account as of late. And I should say also with your personal account, Dave, actually, right? Uh, pretty good. Yeah, I haven't really 
set like that much time into building my personal account until recently but yeah um since the the Mises caucus kind of took over the LP we've grown by about I think 130,000 followers on the Twitter account um so we've gone off pretty hard there broken a lot of the metrics we can always do better but uh we've seen considerable growth okay um in previous conversations you and I have had, we've talked about many different topics. Dave, I, I would consider you as someone that I can kind of just go for any libertarian issue. I'm very confident that you'll have a, a, an educated, thoughtful, probably well, well-researched take on that. So I, I do appreciate um, you existing, really. I mean, you're not driven by... I guess you're selling books. You're making money from that. That's good, right? But what, I, I, before we jump into this, what what in, what inspires you for this path through liberty? What is it? Oh man, you know, believe it or not, it was kind of a negative thing that originally inspired me. I feel like basically all the the public school quote unquote knowledge I got was mostly either garbage or omitted so much fact as to make all the narratives I kind of grew up with just be shattered once I discovered the reality and how much of the the elites and the and the government and in academia and hollywood don't really have my interests in mind and especially when it related to the founding period i think so many people teach bogus narratives about the founding period and um so that that's really what drives me it also is just you know the the issues we have in the world there's a lot of great things about the world as it is now you know there's so much of everything in abundance and yet we have the greatest you know tyrannical state that ever existed so um you know multiple things drive me but it's really like an interest and constant intrigue and drive to reveal like the true history behind world events <clears throat> I am, I've told you before, but I'm pretty new to the world of libertarianism. I'm 40 years old, but it really took COVID to, to wake me up at all. And so I've been going through different, you know, stages of, I guess, my development. And I'm fortunate I have this platform where I get to interview people about each, each step of the way, which is so cool. Um, one that I've, I've been learning about recently is I, I've read a critical piece about Abraham Lincoln. And I thought that was very fascinating. Um, and, and just going back and being used to hearing growing up that Abraham Lincoln was this, you know, the greatest president ever. Everybody loves him. Uh, to, you know, I, I read The the Real Lincoln by De, oh, De Lorenzo. That's a good book. It's Have you so read good. It? It, it, it's so ironic you mention it. That was probably the biggest, quote unquote, red pilling history book I ever read. I was kind of a Lincoln apostle and just thought he was the greatest president ever. And then I found DiLorenzo's book and a lot changed. So it's fantastic. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So that's the book from 2002. He did a remake. I haven't read the second incarnation of that yet, but really wild to just think um, uh, about the heroes of the history of this country that are presented as being the heroes and then possibly trying to at least be aware of the uh, critical look at them. You know, I, I think that's something that, that oftentimes goes missing. I think you don't hear much uh, uh, presented through the traditional educational system about some people would say this and, you know, some would say this and you don't really hear, you just kind of hear the heroic version. 
Oh, absolutely. In in all the deified presidents, he, I mean, FDR, the same thing. How many people grew up knowing that he ran internment camps for people on the basis of their ancestry? I just, I never learned that until afterward. So yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the, the issue that specifically prompted me to invite you on the show today was these wars, uh, you know, us bombing Yemen now, you know, the Israel, Palestine, Ukraine, Russia, um, everything that's going on in my newly opened eyes, that's a big contributor to our, 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 our you know, the, the debt our country has, the, the printing of money. And it's just, to me, so clear that this is really fucking stuff up for us. And so I'm looking at different angles for trying to present arguments or, or you know, a different stance on the wars to my friends and the people that I know, in particular, I'd say in the Kentucky kind of jujitsu community or whoever it is that listens. And one that I thought of, and I've heard people say it before, so I didn't make this up, but that these wars are not consistent with what the founding fathers of our country, the constitution of our country, uh, had intended. And I thought, holy shit, Dave Benner would be a good guy to ask about that. What are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely, for multiple reasons, by the way. like First off, the, the type of war powers that modern executives wield, especially since World War II, is so foreign to the minds of not only the people that supported the Constitution, but the people that opposed the Constitution. So the Federalists and Anti-Federalists, especially the latter, really apprehended the idea of a very powerful president that could just throw the country's forces into war unilaterally. And you know why? Because they had about 800 years of British tradition where the king could do that. The king waged war unilaterally in Britain. Now, he did have to rely on parliament to raise money for it, but um, that was, you know, basically the biggest trepidation you could possibly have, regardless of your, you know, founding father faction, so to speak. So that's the reason that the founders confined that role and that power to Congress. Congress must declare war. Um, and also, you know, some of the most prominent founders, including both Washington and Jefferson and Madison, all basically said, you know, warned of the the pro the potential for um basically entangling alliances to essentially be the undoing of republicanism. Um, Washington famously said this in his departure speech and um Thomas Jefferson famously said this in his first inaugural speech, and you can find other places where, you know, they said those things too. But, um, and that's everything we're dealing with now with NATO. That's the biggest and most destructive entangling alliance in human history. It basically has outlived its original purpose, the Cold War, by what is it, 40 years now, almost 35 years. And uh, we've already pumped. 113 billion into Ukraine. Same thing with the Middle East. Look at all the entangling alliances there. Um, the the basically the the getting involved in the Iraq Iran war, getting involved in the Afghan Soviet war, now getting involved in Israel. I mean, that's been the case since World War II. So look at all these things that have led to inflation because these are costly. It causes the Fed to print more money, which devalues the money that does exist and. Um, and there you have it. So that's my my long-winded spiel about it. One of my friends that I was speaking with, <clears throat> he's a, a, a most of my 
the people that reach out to me are lean Republican. Most. Now, there's some exceptions, but most of the people I talk to about politics who aren't libertarian or Republican. And I had one of my friends say to me the other day, if you're not going to vote for someone who might win in the, the presidential race, I mean, I guess you should, you know, go find somewhere else to live or you don't like this country or, you know, what? I don't know what it is. And I said to him, I said, I would argue that voting, you know, whatever libertarian candidate it is, <clears throat> even if it's not a perfect libertarian, for example, say Joe Jorgensen or whoever, that their stances would in fact be more consistent with the Constitution than either a current day Democrat or Republican. Would you agree with that, Dave? Yeah, for most libertarians, for sure. Um, you know, it, it's ironic that people say that, that the whole wasted vote fallacy for a few reasons. Um, the two that I think are the craziest is one, why is a vote wasted if you're if you're going to vote for someone that you don't even think is going to be necessarily any different than their competitor? Um, that's the true wasted vote in my mind. The other thing is, especially with presidential elections, is every vote in addition to a one vote majority in every state, I think, but forty of but two. Um, is essentially wasted because every state does their elections by having, um, the majority of the voting populace within that state getting to carry their party's electoral votes. Well, anyone that voted happened to vote, you know, in addition to that was essentially a wasted vote. And then you'd be voting for one of the two top competitors. So the whole wasted vote thing, it, it doesn't make much sense to me, especially when you consider that a lot of people in third parties wouldn't actually even show up to the polls if it wasn't to have the opportunity to vote for their candidate's choice especially i mean libertarians there's a lot of agorists that don't even believe in voting um or don't vote often as well so the whole the whole wasted vote thing it, it never really was that persuasive to me even when i was kind of like a old like a neocon which i am a recovered neocon i used to be so until about 2004. yeah yeah i'm certainly to the point now where i couldn't with what I believe about the war machine, I couldn't uh, um, vote for a Republican or Democrat for, for president or, you know, I voted for Rand Paul for Senate because I live in Kentucky. I mean, that's, I would consider a relatively anti-war vote. But I, I really do think the war machine is so evil, so evil, and it's clearly making certain people wealthy. And it's not for goodness. I mean, look at, who is it? Lloyd Austin. How corrupt is the U.S. military, Dave? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, the, any kind of standing military establishment always has the potential to be corrupt, especially in countries where, you know, there's no gun rights because they essentially have a monopoly on all the, the firepower. Thankfully, in the U.S., it's not quite like that. In fact, I think there's about 400 million weapons here, but... Um, no, the military has the potential to be corrupt, and it always has. And the founders knew that because of what happened in both the Roman Republic and in the the, the English Civil Wars. Um, in the first case, Julius Caesar essentially usurped the Republic and started it down the road to an empire, launching a civil war. Um, <laughs> and in England's case, they fought a series of wars over the relative power of parliament and 
the monarchy with Charles the first essentially exerting unconstitutional unprecedented powers um using the military launching wars that were unpopular by the way so we've always seen this go down the the path toward destruction in, in republics how, how is the propaganda so strong in 2024 i guess the government propaganda is so strong that you and i dave we 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 feel strongly that these wars are very very evil <clears throat> But not that many people seem to give a fuck. <laughs> how, how is that? Is there a historical precedent for this extreme? I mean, look at all this this information we have. What percentage of the population do you think has a concern, an actual like, hey, I may not vote for this candidate, or somehow I really care about the fact that people are being slaughtered in Gaza? How many people care about that? It doesn't seem like it's that many to me. Am I am I exaggerating? Um, I think that one actually has, has sparked a lot more interest than I necessarily expected because it's gone on so long. So now there's been what, there's been three months in which, you know, Israel's essentially been bombing Gaza and, uh, the U S has given them, I think at least 20 million or $20 billion since then. And you do see mass protests, especially on the left on this. So I do think that there is a lot of agitation on that compared to like, say Ukraine, which, you know, the U S has been funding for two years and you're right. The propaganda machine on this stuff is crazy with the Israel case. Just anyone that opposes it is an anti-Semite, right? That's all you hear. And if you oppose that Ukraine funding, you're just a, a Putin Putin stooge. You're a, you know, a Russian agent. How many times have we heard that? It's all ludicrous. And this is the same thing that they always do. Like in Iraq, if you, you know, protested the Iraq war or, you know, invading Iraq or bailing out Kuwait, you were a Saddam apologist. If you didn't want to occupy uh, Afghanistan for years and years and years, you were an Al Qaeda sympathizer. If you protested the Vietnam war, you were pro Ho Chi Minh. It, it just didn't stop. This has always been the case. They'll always say that the, the opponents of wars are essentially the enemy or indistinguishable from the enemy. And yeah, the propaganda machine is fierce. I think a lot of people are starting to see through it. I think the independent media has helped a lot with it. Um, Twitter, it's impossible for people to just get information from the three big cable news networks like they used to. Like Everything used to be C CBS, NBC, and ABC, right? Well, the world's a lot different now, and that's at least good. Agreed. Um, you know, there, there, there does seem to be more people who care. There are the, the, the Palestinian, um, you know, protests, and that's not just in the United States, really all across the world, which, of course, I even though those are mostly kind of communist people, <laughs> I, I do think it's a, um, a good a thing. A lot of them are. Yeah. Dave, when I interview you, I like to bounce around. I'm very ADD and I think you're well equipped to handle that. My, yeah, totally. My vision of a conservative, like right-leaning, practical, political stance would be anti-war. Who historically leans to the right but is solidly anti-war? Is there anyone that comes to mind for you? Is there many? I guess you could say about Ron Paul, right? Certainly Ron Paul. I think almost certainly Thomas Massey. I think that Massey has you know some potential hawkishness toward china at times maybe 
but he's probably the best one that's in office now. Uh, Matt Gates is pretty darn anti-war, except is, when is it comes really? to oh. uh, not. I mean, again, I, I think he's a China hawk, and he's certainly an Israel hawk. But um, you know, he's launched some good things like a resolution to pull troops out of Syria. That's failed, but you know, he's better than most. Okay. Actually, Ilhan Omar is a very anti-war person too and people might be surprised to hear that name but she's actually really good would it be safe to say maybe she's good for completely different reasons than you and i are on on foreign policy i think she's good for the essentially mostly the same reasons i don't i don't think she cares as much about like that that effect on like government power the depreciation of currency but from a humanitarian standpoint i do think she cares about it and is good because of that okay fair so so, so and so. the distant left and like there's not really many elected distant left but like the jimmy doors of the world the caitlin johnstones are really good on being anti-war so despite probably not having anything in common with them on economics i have to give them credit i actually think the dissident left is better right now than the distant right on war because you can find a lot of like distant right figures like jack posobiec and ian miles chong that i think at the drop of a hat would go to war with china and that's insane to me <laughs> so you, you've mentioned china a few times i'll, I'll admit i don't know a lot about um, what the fears are with China, I could I don't think I could articulate really what what the 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 fears are. I guess more so on the right. How would you describe what is the Republican fear, or or, or is China kind of like the Republican boogeyman in a way, or, or, or one of oh, them? Oh, totally. I I think, and I'll I I'll be just frank with this. I think the right is just as retarded with China as the left is with Russia. So if not more, and if, if that uh, is politically incorrect, I'm sorry. And here's why I think it's two prong. Number one is, you know, the neocons want to have a global hegemony. They want to control large swaths of, of the world, essentially police the world, carve out a world empire of sorts. That's what the U S has done essentially since world war two. And China represents the biggest world power in Asia. Um, and because of U.S.'s relationship with Taiwan, the fear is that, well, if China decided someday to invade Taiwan, and they never have um, and always could have, really could have since the, the communists took over, um, that the U.S. should intervene on their behalf, just like the, the Democrats say that we had to intervene to save Ukraine, right? And And they'll make up all sorts of reasons why. Well, it's the semiconductors. If... If Taiwan falls, China will have all the semiconductors. To me, it's just insane. Just trade with China then or produce semiconductors here. It, it makes no sense. It, it, it makes it seem like international trade would not exist if Taiwan fell to China. And trust me, I don't want Taiwan to fall to China. I just don't think it's my business. Um, China has their own autonomy, their own capability to have a military doesn't involve me. But the second reason I think that they're, they're a boogeyman is because Republicans have become total protectionists. And I think it's mostly because of Donald Trump. I think this is actually the, the most underappreciated, but one of the worst parts of his legacy is the protectionist impulses he we had that he has. Um, for some reason, he believes that cheap products from China are a bad thing. 
And in the protectionist mind, I guess they are because consumers benefit from getting them cheaply at the expense of domestic jobs, right? Because we get things cheap from China, you know, we don't really have that many clothing manufacturers here. Well, I say great. Um, And, you know, Bob Murphy has put this perfectly as to why that's a good thing in this way. He says, well, what if China shipped us a bunch of televisions, not just cheap ones, but for free? Why would that be a bad thing? That's just taking that argument to an extreme. And I would think it'd be a good thing. And how much of a good thing is it? However many television sets you get for free. So um, that's how I would break it down. So what did Trump do with China related to, uh, was there tariffs? Yeah. So Trump had, even in his campaign, he had championed the idea of raising tariffs. And for if people don't know, it's just a tax on foreign goods. So the idea behind them actually, and they have a long history in the U.S. In fact, the founders wanted there to be tariffs rather than income taxes. But the problem with tariffs is that rather than just being a revenue tariff, meaning that it's designed to generate revenue, well, the feds already have that in the form of IRS. What they use tariffs now for is economic warfare. They're protective tariffs because it's designed to force people, American consumers, to buy more expensive or worse goods from domestic sources rather than foreign uh, goods that might be better or way more cheap. And Trump used power unilaterally to raise taxes without the consent of Congress, by the way. Congress basically punted some of their authority making um, to the president, and that's partially on them, by the way. And Trump took advantage of that by raising uh, the percentage on you know a host of goods from China. Um, thankfully, I don't think he got totally what he wanted. I, like at one point, I think he was flirting with saying, "Oh, we need to have a thirty percent protective uh, tariff on all Chinese goods." I don't think he got that, but um, you know that's an issue. We're free. I'm a free trader. I want everyone to be able to trade with everyone else on earth. I don't care what country they come from. I think it's propaganda even to say you're trading with China. You're actually trading with people that happen to live in China. I don't want to trade with the government. I want to trade with people that provide great goods and services. So I went off a little bit there, but that's what I would say. So tariffs in your mind are are never acceptable from your your libertarian uh, uh, frame of thought? Well, I don't think, I mean, technically, I don't think any kind of taxes are acceptable from my libertarian train of thought, because I think everything should be voluntary based on contract. If you want to want something, um, you should buy it. But when it comes to taxation, if I was forced by a gun to say what kind of taxation I think is more like moral, if, if it is, I would think like no income taxes and a nominal revenue tariff would be much more um, relatively moral speaking, but you know, I don't agree with taxes at all that the U S government essentially ran on a system where almost all taxation was tariffs for maybe 140 years. There was only a few times in which the U S government enacted excises. The whiskey excise was the most famous of that. Those in the 1790s, um, Lincoln tried to institute some, you know, brief income taxes for a while during the Civil War. But other than that, the U.S. government was funded via revenue tariffs, essentially. And we had roads, we had police officers, we had government, you know, we had uh, all sorts of uh, government agencies and a standing military. So it, it definitely is possible. Who 
who is Trump appeasing by by leaning into those that rhetoric and 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 pushing for the tariffs with China? Who is there a I guess the blue collar workers in the United States like that? Yeah, certainly. I mean, he wants to. I mean, and even Steve Bannon said this as Trump's advisor when Trump, you know, had won and. He said, what we want to do is create a new American system. And what he was referring to was Henry Clay's economic platform from the early 19th century. So, yeah, they're appeasing to blue collar workers, um, you know, union workers that might be fearful that their jobs would go away if Americans suddenly have the choice to, to trade with Chinese for, you know, the same or similar good instead. Well, I want that right. And if, if they can't provide that on in a competitive way, their labor should be free to do something else. But yeah, I think that's why who Trump's appealing to. And Trump's really popular with, with workers because of it. I wouldn't deny it. I just don't think that's the right policy. Can you give me a rundown of, of how we're going to find how and when we will learn who the Libertarian Party candidate for president is, please? Yes, yeah, certainly. So the Libertarian Party does a process where each state's affiliate Libertarian Party elects a slate of delegates. And the number of delegate spots they have is proportional to the number of national members within that state. So, for instance, the, the states with a lot of members will be like Texas and, and California. Um, those delegate slates that get elected usually at that state's annual convention, which it's convention season right now for the next few months. So um, if you want to take a look at when your state's convention is, just Google your state's Libertarian Party. Take a look at that. Usually at the convention, those delegates are elected. And then we go to the national convention in May in Washington, D.C., the belly of the beast, um, mortar on the Potomac um, for our national convention. And we will elect the presidential candidate there. Our presidential candidate nomination process is kind of interesting too. It's round by round where we vote and um, each round someone that doesn't have a rec the lowest um, vote getters under a specific thresholds will basically be taken out. And then we have new rounds until one candidate gets 50%. So I hope that helps, but it will be in May that we, we know. Okay. <clears throat> And what is a realistic goal for the presidential campaign as far as maybe percentage of vote? And, and, you know, what are the, what are the, I guess this maybe is a philosophical, philosophic type question, but what's a goal for a campaign for president for the Libertarian Party? Well, I'm glad you asked this, and this answer might not be popular in all circles of the party. And I, in fact, I know it isn't, but I don't give a damn about percentages whatsoever. Um, I'll just say that straight up. Um, because that's not how the presidents are elected. Um, and I don't think that's important. We're, we're a small party right now. I would take a thousand lifelong libertarian activists any day over 10,000 one-time relatively meaningless presidential votes. So what I think the goal of our chief banner waiver presidential nominee is, is to light fires, light brush fires under people's, uh, in people's minds, um, bring the libertarian truth to them, educate the public on why it's so necessary. Um, Ron Paul revolution 2.0. Um, we need people to, you know, be informed about libertarian ideas so that they can join the movement as activists. And then those activists, we can put our energies into local things because we're not going to win the presidency. 
Um, you know, we could say pie in the sky that, you know, Hey, I'm going to shoot for three or 5%, but I just don't think that matters. I think that, um, Gary Johnson and Bill Weld got about, Oh man, I forgot how many percent, but I think they had over 4 million presidential popular votes in 2016. And in the, the years after that, we lost a, f- a few thousand members from the party. So even if you give them credit for getting the most number of votes in LP history, which I think they did, you know, our membership suffered. So I want our membership to explode. And just to get back to answering your question, I think a realistic goal is to have our presidential candidate recruit 7,500 party members. I think that would be a a realistic goal and an achievable one and one that would be fantastic. So... Uh, uh, people that we know of who, who may be running would be like maybe Spike Cohen, Mike Rechtenwald, um, Josh Smith, I think is a name. Um, I'm not real from as familiar with Josh, to be honest. Um, anyone else or are, are those three accurate that I mentioned? Those are possible. Um, Spike candidates. is not, not running. Although some people think that he will run, he is not stated that he won't run yet, which is causing some speculation, I think. But, uh, I don't know about him, but you're right on the other ones. Rectonwald, Josh Smith, there's Chase Oliver, there's Lars Mapstead, there's uh, Mike Termott, and there's a few other, uh, Jacob Hornberger, and there's a few others. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the, it will be interesting. If Spike decides to run, that will be very interesting. Um, so Why? Why would that be? Because I think he'll win. I think he'll win on the first ballot. I think that he, he we wouldn't even go to subsequent rounds in the presidential polling personally, but that's just my gut. Um, and I think he knows that. I love Spike. He's great. We talk from time to time, like on, on Twitter and such, um, but I know he's also running You Are the Power, and that's his baby, and he wants to you know run you know nullification campaigns and single-issue coalitions in the state, and that's really close to his heart too. So I don't know if he'll run, but I think he'll win if he runs. What makes Spike an effective communicator and, and, and um, you know, I don't know what you would say, but deliver of the, the Liberty message. He's just so articulate. He's so well-read. He's brilliant and he's very colloquial, sociable, and he's, um, he's, he's never defensive. He, he's just, he's just a very good communicator of the message. I've never, you know, there's been like a very small amount of things that I've ever disagreed with him on. I just feel like he's almost unimpeachable as a candidate. He also has a pretty good platform. He's been on, you know, Tim pool. He's been on some big podcasts, um, maybe not quite as big as Dave Smith, but we know that Dave, you know, he's been on Rogan a million times, but he's not running. Um, but he has a brand. He has, um, and he's just a cool guy. He's a really kind guy. So hope would, that helps. Sure. Would you say Spike Cohen's stance on, in our country right now, the southern border is a big issue. <clears throat> would you say Spike Cohen's stance on immigration is not quite consistent with like the Mises Caucus? Well, the Mises Caucus is split between people that feel really differently on that issue. And case in point, we supported Jacob Hornberger in 2020, and he's an avid open borders zealot. 
Um, but you're right. There are people in the Mises caucus that have more of a closed borders mentality or like me essentially adopt the Rothbardian and Hoppian position that all government lands, including the borderland, should just be privatized and the private business owners that then own them should have full discretion over who enters and exits and that, you know, closed borders, open borders isn't the best, you know, way to frame the issue. And it's certainly not the the libertarian ideal to have government borders anyways. Um, but so, no, I don't really. Um, I think that he's so popular enough in that regard that, uh, you know, even a lot of people that don't agree with open borders would support him and, uh, and vice versa. Um, so, yeah, I hope that helps. Certainly does. Yeah. What, what, what do you think is the main drawback if, if we're looking to recruit from existing Republicans? Uh, the current, like what would if, stop existing Republicans from joining right now? Kind for, of thing? From, from coming over to our side. And what I mean by our yeah. side is I wouldn't even vote for, I, I, I'm either not going to vote for president or I'm going to vote for whoever the Libertarian Party candidate is. I, I'm not even considering yeah. joining voting Republican. I never will for president again unless it's like somehow Rand Paul or Thomas Massey maybe or, you know, who knows. But uh, it right. would be very – or maybe Vivek if he would have won. And, and he was saying he was going to close down or audit the Federal Reserve. Maybe. You know, but unless unless there's something, someone even humoring the idea of something substantive, I don't plan on ever voting for that again. So how do we get mm. existing Republicans to see the light? Well, just to show them like how fraudulent the current Republicans are when it comes to big government, like they'll talk a big game when it comes to small government, but they never deliver it. They never even deliver it when they have both houses of Congress and the presidency um, during that time. There was more spending than there had ever had, had ever been. I think Biden is coming close to the total number of spending under Trump, but they wouldn't even repeal Obamacare. All right. Um, late in Obama's term, the Republican Congress sent him several bills that was just a straight repeal of Obamacare. He vetoed all of them, of course. But then when they won, they wouldn't send Trump the same bill. They wanted their own quasi-socialist you know, health care system. So they're just frauds on almost every regard. You can say America first and then, you know, expand the wars in Syria and Yemen. That's what happened there. Um, we had basically Fauci up on a podium every day. Trump would not fire him. Trump instead was the architect of Operation Warp Speed that developed the the vaccines, which are really mRNA treatments that eventually Biden tried to mandate at the cost of being fired if you didn't take it. So I don't know all these schemes that the Republicans ran, they never deliver. Sometimes you'll see Republicans say like, end the IRS or end the department of energy. I see Ted Cruz tweet both of those things from time to time. And I just have to laugh because they don't even try even when they have power in Congress. Um, so really we're, we're stuck under the duopoly. And I mean it when I say like it, it's really the uniparty. There's so much continuity between presidents, even between Trump and Biden, despite all the rhetoric and all the theatrics, most of the policies are, are really the same. What would you say if a Republican, a MAGA guy said, well, Dave, you don't get it. Trump was an anti-war president. He didn't start any new wars. Well, that's that's their line, right? But it 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 doesn't give you the full context because the full context is he expanded two wars, 
one in Yemen and one in Syria. And the first one's unforgivable because in one of the only vetoes of his presidency, he vetoed a bill that would have ended the U.S. military presence in Yemen entirely. Um, and he said that, well, by v- if I do this, Congress is just going to meddle with with my quote-unquote constitutional powers. The war wasn't even declared. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he didn't launch a new war, and that's great, but it it doesn't save the fact that you know military spending was crazy and the war in yemen might result in one million deaths by its by the time it's all over right there children are starving because the u.s blockade is stopping food and medical supplies and basic goods from getting in it, it's really horrendous if you if you read up on that um you know you won't have a good stomach after that i once heard dave smith say he had read pat buchanan's book churchill Hitler, and the war that should have never happened. I, I, I made it through. I listened to the audio book of it, and I'm just now going back and trying to redigest it. Okay, so I'm working on it. <laughs> the premise of the book is had the United States, I guess in Eng- England, really had not gotten involved in World War One. that perhaps they, you know, they shouldn't have really been involved there, and then it wouldn't have been involved in World War Two. I know this is a random topic, <laughs> But that's why I bring you on. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it's hard to deny that at least in the European theater, the Treaty of Versailles was essentially the catalyst for World War II or one of the primary ones. Um, and that would not have occurred if that if the U.S. wouldn't have entered the war and, and Britain. So, yeah, I mean, I, I have to agree with that. I don't think that explains everything because, you know, there was an Asian component to the war that is almost never told about where – you know, Japan invaded Manchuria and then China before, you know, Hitler invaded Poland. So, um, yeah, I mean, I haven't, I did read that book a long time ago, but it's been some time. But, yeah, I mean, people don't want to, you know, come to terms with it because history always began yesterday. For the average American, World War II began at the bombing of Pearl Harbor, right? But, you know, there was so much background beyond that. And the the culmination of and settlement of post World War One, that really you know gave Germans all the ammo they needed to um, basically try to get back at the powers of Europe, and it it was catastrophic. My interview style, like I always say, super ADD. But what prompted me to to ask you that question was the word blockade. You mentioned Pearl Harbor. What was what was the reason for the the uh, Pearl Harbor. (laughs) Well, the U.S. decided to enact an oil embargo in 1941. And again, this is another fact that Americans just don't know. You weren't taught this in history, but um, the Americans enacted an oil embargo to stop Japan from receiving fuel. And Japan, you know, was a society that was growing at the time. They weren't complete. They were industrializing rapidly and they were so dependent on on oil. So they felt that unless, you know, they declared war on America and somehow tried to confront um, America on the side of the Axis powers, they would never be able to sustain life there for, you know, enough time. Um, So that's why they attacked at Pearl Harbor. It was because of the oil embargo. Um, Embargoes are acts of war and they traditionally have been considered that for hundreds of years. And it's only when America seems to practice that that you know the mainstream media will will say that 
you know, this was a preemptive strike that Pearl Harbor was. And trust me, I'm not, that doesn't justify Pearl Harbor and those atrocities. I think 3000 people died there and it's not right. But at the same time, we have to look back and see what explains this. And the U S had a role in that tragedy. And it's, you know, it's sad. This may not be the best question, but the United States currently has blockades against many countries across the world, correct? Um, Yemen for sure. Um, I'm Cuba? not sure. Would Cuba, would that be called a blockade or some saint? What? Um, I, I'm not certain on that. I don't want to speak to the Cuba thing, but certainly Yemen. Okay. Okay. In, in the Yemen war. Okay. So Yemen has just injected itself back into what's going on right now. Or they haven't injected themselves back in, probably. But, you know. Um, didn't the Yemen war that you described earlier, didn't that end like a year or two ago? No. it was, There was a potential for it to end, and they had agreed on a ceasefire. Okay. And then Bernie Sanders actually in, introduced a bill that would have killed it again. And, you know, there was this big push for a few days, like support Bernie's bill or whatever. And then it sounds like he had a talk with Biden and just decided to yank that bill and not even have it voted on. Um, so there was a ceasefire for a time, but it never really ended. And it, I think it's been going on since 2014 or 2015, somewhere in there. Obama uh, was the first president that that started. And, and, and it really has no constituency. A lot of Americans don't even know that's happening. And there's no really anyone pleading for the U.S. to, to go to war with Yemen. It's just there to line the pockets of the military industrial complex and placate the Saudis. It's crazy. The Saudis are closer allies to the U S than, you know, Ukra Ukrainians, I think almost <laughs> didn't, isn't Obama on he's recorded is saying they did that to placate the Saudis. I think that's true. Um, you're probably right about that. I'm not aware of that specifically. I, I wish Horton could be here. He would tell you everything, but <laughs> Okay. Well, Dave Benner, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, you know, of course, you, you helped to run the Libertarian Party national Twitter account. Um, you have released, you said, three books? Yeah, three books. Could you give a summary of your books? Yeah. So last one is Thomas Paine, A Lifetime of Radicalism. It's, I think, the most complete biography of Thomas Paine that has ever been written. I'm very proud of it. But it especially speaks to his radical political beliefs that were really kind of way ahead of his time. You know, a lot of people write their books saying, you know, my subject was a man of his time. But, you know, I have the you know, honor of saying that Thomas Paine was born far ahead of his time. And I think you'll pick up on that if you read it. Another book is Compact of the Republic, The League of States and the Constitution. It basically delves into why the U.S. had a decentralized political system and why that was so unique. In fact, that was the exceptional part of America, not this empire building thing and how that vision of this decentralized Republic has kind of eroded over time. And then the third one is a more boring book, but for constitutional scholars, you might find it interesting. It's about the 14th amendment and the incorporation doctrine. It's basically a legal mantra that allows federal judges to basically adjudicate um, adjudicate 
disputes within states that they were never supposed to have the power to do. And it's really a mechanism for them to act as an oligarchy and insert their own policy preferences into localities. So those three books, you can get them all at DaveBenner.com. Um, there's a link right in the middle to my store. Great stuff. Dave Benner, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thanks, Kelly. This was awesome, man. Let's do it again.